Please open your Bibles to the book of Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Lord willing, we'll finish this second chapter. Paul's epistle to the Galatians chapter 2 verse 15 through 21 is our passage. We call this the core of the true gospel. And it'll be evident as to why that is. So let's read from verse 15 through 21. You can follow along here to set this in our mind before we start to unpack this. Paul writes in verse 15, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus... Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. A glorious text on the core of the gospel. Well, it is the age-old question that mankind is asked, or certainly needs to ask, most certainly should be asking, and it is, how can a sinner be right before God? How can a sinner be right before God? Fallen humanity's greatest dilemma, most serious problem in life is spiritual and not physical. Our most serious issue in life is not political, it's not not financial, it's not physical health. It's not global warming, in spite of what your president says. It's not even white supremacy, and it's not the COVID vaccine. That's not the greatest dilemma. The greatest dilemma is even greater than poverty. It's greater than being persecuted and oppressed. It's, It's greater than even battling lung cancer. The greatest dilemma and the greatest question to ask is, what is my standing before the Almighty? The heart of mankind's spiritual dilemma is their inability to overcome their sinfulness, which separates them from God and puts them under His condemnation. How can a guilty, condemned sinner be made righteous and therefore acceptable to God? As we have said many times before in our study here, it is true that of both Jew and Gentile, both groups are equally human, therefore are equally sinful, therefore equally guilty before God. Equally lost are Jew and Gentile, equally unrighteous, equally damned. And I have a string of verses here that I want to lay out before you like a string of pearls to show you just to lay this foundation here for our passage today. I remind you of Romans 3, 9, and 10. Paul writes, What then? Are we better than they? What's he talking about? Well, not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, as it is written, There's none righteous, not even one. Romans 3, 23 would say, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Psalm 143, written by David. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness and in your righteousness. And do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. Job, the oldest book in the Bible, the same question is asked. He writes in Job 4.17, Can mankind be just before God? Can a man be pure before his Maker? He goes on to say in Job 8, 22 through 92, Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no longer. Then Job answered and says this, In truth, I know that this is so. But how can a man be right before God? 
Ecclesiastes 7.20 Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So humanity's most pressing issue or greatest dilemma is not political, it's not physical, physical health in any way. It's, it's not even death. It's not the devil or his minions. No, your and my greatest dilemma, mankind's greatest dilemma is God himself. For he's the one to whom you have to deal with. Because he's righteous and good, he must punish sin. Because we are all sinful and evil, he must punish us. Talking unconverted. Now how can this be avoided? How can sinful man be reconciled to God? Well, the answer, of course, is the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of grace. And coming to our text in Galatians 2, 15 through 21, we see the core of the gospel. Our section here is, is closing up a larger section which began back in chapter 1, verse 11. And we learn from this text that began in chapter 1, verse 11, because of false brethren that came into the churches up there in Galatia, north of Jerusalem and modern-day Turkey, a false message to the churches that they were opposing the Apostle Paul's gospel of grace. Paul then is forced, we learn from the Galatians, to defend his message, to defend the true gospel, and to defend his ministry against the false teachers who were saying, in essence, faith in Christ alone is not enough for salvation, but you must also keep the law of Moses. This, of course, is an attack on Paul's gospel, which is God's gospel. To add human works, effort of any kind to the true gospel of grace in order to earn righteousness before God is to pervert and pollute the true gospel. Paul says... In chapter 1, verse 8, that this is a damning heresy. Let the person be anathema who would speak such lies, even if he's an angel from heaven. Works in grace, as we have said before, are diametrically opposed one to another, like oil and water. They cannot mix. You cannot mix them. Grace is no longer grace the moment you add works. Eternal souls and God's glory are at stake, and so Paul writes to defend the truth with passion that is not seen in any other of his epistles. Paul tells them, we've learned in the section before us, how he went to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles Peter, James, and John. They listened to his gospel. They affirmed Paul's gospels, the very same as theirs, therefore of the truth, and they departed there in fellowship. Paul was to go to the Gentiles, and Peter was to go to the Jews. Now, God, in his amazing grace, had sent the gospel to the city of Antioch, which is up north of Jerusalem, and he wonderfully saved many, many people there, both Jews and Gentiles, in one body, in one fellowship, the way it's supposed to be. He saved many of them. Paul and Barnabas, we learn from the early chapters of Acts, were served there as pastors at Antioch. And there for a while, before they were sent out on their missionary journeys, they pastored in the church of Antioch. It, by all means, seems to be a model church, because it was both Jews and Gentiles together in one body, serving the Lord together, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ together. They lived in peace together. They shared meals together. They fellowshiped together. They, they participated, I'm sure, in the love feast and the Lord's table together without any problems. There was peace in this fellowship. But we learn from chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, that a problem had come. Jews came from Jerusalem, legalists, Judaizers, to stop this gospel of freedom they had that the Gentiles were experiencing and the Jews there in the church of Antioch. They came supposedly from James, but we learn from Acts 15 that James did not send them. They came and zealously opposed the gospel of grace. They said that, that the Gentile men who believed in Jesus must also be circumcised according to the law of Moses and that all believers must live according to the law of Moses or they could not be saved. In other words, you had to become Jewish in living. So persuasive were these false teachers that we learned in the previous section, 11 through 14, that even Peter and Barnabas joined in their hypocrisy. That's pretty humbling to think that they could be moved off beam. 
Who am I? You see, be careful. Be careful. Peter and Barnabas and the other Jews in the church of Antioch began to pull away from the Gentiles and no longer shared meals together. They no longer did fellowship together with them. The church, in essence, is split in two, Jewish church, Gentile church. And the Jews saw themselves, as, as they naturally would, according to the law of Moses, as superior to the Gentiles because of the law. If left alone... This heresy, this doctrine, would destroy the gospel of grace and the true ministry of God. This legalism, to this day, is one of the greatest threats to the gospel. Peter's defection demands action, and so we learn from our text 2.11 and following that Paul is willing to confront him, which tells you how important the gospel of grace is to defend because people's souls are at stake and the glory of Christ is at stake. You can't say that about everything, but that which you can, you and I need to be willing to defend it. And Paul was willing to defend it. So the question how sinful man can be right before God is at stake because the answer to the question is the gospel of grace. And Paul began his confrontation in 2.14 and it continues all the way to the end of this chapter. I think he's talking to Peter all the way to the end of this, and he picks it up with the Galatians in 3.1 when he says, You foolish Galatians. 15 through 16 of chapter 2, he will state clearly the doctrine of justification by faith. He will state it as clearly as any other scripture in the Bible. And this he will follow in verses 17 through 21 with his explanation and defense of the statement made in verse 16. So as we see here, we're going to see him state the doctrine, justification by faith alone, and then we're going to see in 17 through 21 his explanation and defense of that doctrine. So then, look at verse 15 and 16 with me, please, and see the doc doctrine of justification by faith. Verse 15, he says, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Now he speaks this way, and he says we, he's including himself, he's talking to the Jewish people of, of this um, heresy, of this church. Peter and Barnabas and the other Jews includes himself because he is a Jew. And if you were to back up to the second half of verse 14, notice what he says in verse 14. I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Verse 15, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. What is he saying here? Well, he's, he's, he's saying that not that Jews are not sinners either. What he's saying is the Gentiles are outside the covenant people of Israel. Therefore, they're outside the, 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 the law, the Torah, and they're seen as sinners. Jesus was, wasn't he often in, in the houses of tax collectors and sinners, right? prostitutes and sinners. Those who did not live according to Torah are seen as sinners. Well, so what he's saying here in verse 15, we are Jews by nature and not like those Gentiles who are outside the Torah, outside the law. We're governed by the law. These Gentiles are not. And so you can see coming off of verse 14 when he, when he says to Peter, how is it that you live like a Gentile and now you're expecting Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature, not sinners from among the Gentiles. You see, the Gentiles were outside the covenant. They were seen as sinners. In Ephesians, so the, the privilege of being a Jew is you receive the oracles of God the covenants of God. In fact, Ephesians 2.12 says it like this. Remember that you, and he's talking to Gentiles, were at that time separate from Christ, pre-conversion Gentiles, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's a Gentile, right? A sinner. So, what, so Paul's argument here in Galatians, Peter... You're living like a Gentile and not a Jew, and you're expecting Gentiles to live like Jews. We, in contrast to the Gentiles, are Jews by nature and not sinners. We live according to the law. 
in spite of the Jews' superior advantage and privileges because of that, I mean, they're God's chosen people. They're given the revelation of God. There's no nation on the planet like the Jewish nation to this day. I mean, it's amazing, right? But they have the very same dilemma as the Gentiles. In other words, no matter their privilege, they still have to answer the question, how can a man who is sinful be right before God? Perhaps it was just by birth into the Jewish people that saved you. Or maybe it was being Jewish in blood and then circumcised that saved you. Or maybe it was being born in the Jewish blood, Jewish family, young man circumcised on the eighth day, and then raised according to the Torah and lived out the law of Moses. Maybe that saved you, right? Um, is, that, is, that what, is that how one is saved? Well, does keeping Torah save anybody? No. Look at where he goes, because look where he moves on to in verse 16. Nevertheless, in spite of that great privilege of being Jewish and not a sinner of the Gentiles, nevertheless, knowing conviction, and then he repeats justified here three times in this one verse, and notice how he, he still repeats the, the pronoun we. So this is, this is all, talking to Jews. Right here, he's talking to Jews. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. He's talking to Jews. Even though you're not sinners from amongst Gentiles, the doctrine of justification by faith applies to the Jewish people. You must believe in Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 16, the word justified. This, this is a legal term. This comes from the, the law courts of the day, and it, and it has the idea of being declared righteous. This is the declaration of righteousness. And the opposite is condemnation, to be condemned. It is then, what do we mean by justified here? It is the judge declaring the once guilty sinner as no longer guilty, but actually righteous. Declaring them righteous. That is, now right with the law, not a transgressor, not a trespasser, but now right with the law and therefore right with the judge. And no longer condemned. It is not only, get this, justification, this declaration of righteousness is not only a full pardon of the crimes committed and now the slate is clean, but now the slate says righteous. It's not just clean, it has righteous stamped on it. Okay? In fact, the slate will always from now on for the believer say righteous. It'll never be undone. So the declaration that he's talking about here is not only a full pardon, but it's even more than that because you could sin again and then taint that column of a debit, if you will. But what he is saying, you're not only pardoned of all your sin, you're declared right before God. Never to be undone again. He's talking to a Jew in particular here. Okay? Even though we're not sinners from the Gentiles, you Jews who have the law chosen people, you are saved the very same way as a Gentile. That is by faith in Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that declaration is for you as, as well as it is for Gentiles. The declaration is you are declared righteous. This is positional. okay? Because there's still sin. When you came to Christ in repentance and faith and you're still trusting him, you still sin. But it does not affect this column of credit where Christ's righteousness was stamped to your, your side of the column, you are forever declared righteous no matter how much you sin. Think of that. Oh, you're preaching license now, preacher. Hey, if that's how you take it, then I must be getting it right. Because Lloyd-Jones says you will be accused of being licentious and antinomial if you preach the gospel of grace. Right? That's how free it is. That's a whole different, sanctification is a whole different issue. But deck, justification here. Okay, so what we're saying again, you will never be more righteous in position than the moment you were converted. 
because the righteousness that is yours belongs to God. And he's not giving you a little more righteousness every time you take communion or every time you be nice to people. He's not adding to that. The righteousness that he put to your account is the righteousness of Jesus Christ and it's full. It satisfies God. Okay? So, verse 16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not declared righteous, I add there, by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Wow. So, so settled is this, Paul can write in Romans 8, 1, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now remember, the opposite of being declared righteous is condemnation. So it's just a negative way of saying the same thing. You will never not be declared righteous before God if you're a believer. Another way of saying it, you'll never fall under condemnation. Ever. Ever. It's almost too good to be true. Praise God. <laughs> right? Verse 16, he goes on and he makes it very clear how this comes about in verse 16. Look at what it says here. He starts in the negative when he says there that knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, this is to correct or reprove Peter's actions by saying it the way he does. You're not justified by works of the law. He's speaking right at and refuting and rebuking Peter. Because he's answering the question again, how are you right before God? It's not by the works of the law. Peter, like Paul and every other Jewish person, since the law was given through Moses 1,400 years before this, could not keep the law perfectly. Therefore, is under the condemnation of God. Galatians 3.10 says it like this, For as many as there are the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. James 2 would say it like this in, in verses 10 and 11, that if you were to keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, you're what? You're guilty of the whole law. Because if you don't commit murder, but you do commit adultery, are you not a transgressor? And the whole law's curse and penalty comes against that person, you see. So no one is able to keep the law for righteousness ever. That was not the law's intent, by the way. If you're looking to the old covenant, and there are many, the more I'm alive that I come across, who think the old covenant is, is the means of salvation, it's the way they're supposed to live, they would say the law is the means of righteousness, and God has just given you the grace in order to live by the law, in order to be declared righteous. That is not from God. That's exactly what Paul's getting after here. Okay? That person is greatly deceived. The law, that only condemns because it demands perfection. It demands perfection. You who are being circumcised, and he say later in Galatians, you've got to keep the whole law. You can't just pick and choose. Oh, I like this law and this one and neglect all the others. If you choose to live by law, old covenant, you have to live by the entire old covenant. And when you break one, you're under the condemnation of it, you see. Okay. So then, in the middle of verse 16, look at what it says here. He's reminding Peter, the, set, the, the we there, we have believed, in the middle of verse 16, we have believed in Christ Jesus. And notice the purpose of that is followed, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Faith and works, again, are set against one another in this context. Faith and works cannot mix as far as justification goes. They're two different ends of the spectrum. They, they cannot be mixed, much like grace and works do not work. It has to be pure faith, pure trust. Any works added pollutes it, dilutes it. The next chapter 3 will deal more precisely with faith and its and its content and elements and so I won't go there just to mention that if when we talk about faith when it says we believe in Christ Jesus and we're justified by faith what is he talking about he's talking about trust to trust in Saturday morning we talked about this um, in our men's uh, Bible Academy 
that faith is a better word for our English, our English better translation would be to trust in. It, is, it has the idea of investing in. It has the idea of investing my life. I believe what Christ says, therefore it moves me into action. It moves me to yield to his lordship. I can't just say, yeah, I believe in Abraham Lincoln and just go live like this, right? Yeah, I believe Abraham Lincoln existed, but he doesn't have a lot of impact on my life. You know, I really don't care, actually. <laughs> but Jesus Christ is a little different. I believe he lived, <laughs> and I believe he spoke, and I believe he makes demands. Do you believe it? Then you, you, your life is acted upon. You act that out, right? Okay, so to trust in Jesus Christ for justification, it is to invest in him, it's to invest my life, it's a decision to be made, okay? I take him at his word, and I live accordingly. I commit to him. All that is wrapped up in there, and we'll see that in the weeks ahead. So then, I trust in Christ himself as my righteousness. This is what the true gospel is demanding. I trust in Christ himself for my righteousness. Therefore, I do not live as though I must keep the law in order to be right with God. Philippians 3.9 was read earlier. Listen to verse 9 of Philippians 3. Paul writes, And may be found in him, that is Christ, what does it mean to be found in Christ? Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's justification by faith. The righteousness required by God is provided by God to those who believe. And it's all of grace and not of works. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Those are glorious verses, messages of grace. Paul finishes in verse 16, please. He's emphatic here. Look at how at the end of verse 16, he goes on and says this, Since by the works of the law, he finishes, no flesh will be justified. So he he's, he's even comes to a finer point. Not only no person, he just says, you know, whatever has flesh, whatever has human nature, Jew, Gentile, or, you know, whatever person you want to put in there, maybe subhuman to you, I don't know, but it has flesh, it can't be justified by works. Only by faith in Christ. Only by faith. So he establishes that doctrine. Peter believes this. Peter knows this. But he's defected and he has not been faithful because he was afraid of the Judaizers, right? Oh, I don't want to do that. It scares me because I'm, I'm sure I'm more like Peter than I am like Jesus, to be honest, right? I'm in process. Can I say that? I'm in process and so are you. So he goes on to verse 17 and following. He goes from the doctrine of justification, establishing that. He goes to the explanation of it and his defense of it. Look at verse 17. Paul's arguing from the Jewish legalist perspective. He says, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves, again, he's continuing the pronoun we, that's the Jewish perspective here, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Well, let's see what this is saying here in verse 17. If we are yet bound to the law of Moses, okay, this is the argument here. If, from the Judaizers, okay, from the legalists. They're saying that we are bound to the law of Moses. If we are obligated to keep it, but we have decided to believe the gospel and follow Christ, remember Peter's deal here, we believe that he is our righteousness and he has fulfilled the whole law on our behalf. And so if we believe that and we believe that we are free from it, and Peter believed this because, remember, he was shown the vision in Acts 10 and was told by God the Gentiles are no longer to be called unholy, but you can go to them, evangelize them, and treat them as brothers when Christ saves them. But the argument goes like this. If you were seeking to be justified by faith in Christ, and this is actually not true, remember the Judaizers' perspective, they deny that justification is by faith. 
If you are seeking to be justified by faith in Christ, and this actually is not true, then to be associating with non-Jews, which is to disregard the law, then you are actually living like the sinners from amongst the Gentiles. That's what verse 17 is saying. And he's, he's going after Peter, and he says, Peter, if, you, if you're seeking to be justified by faith in Christ, and that really is not true, and that you're actually under the law's jurisdiction, you're actually found to be a sinner. <laughs> you're actually found to be a sinner. Now listen, if the law has not been, been fulfilled by Christ, and if justification's not by faith in Christ, then to follow Christ is to then to be led into sin. Right? Peter... Paul says, is Christ a servant of sin? Peter, is that what you're saying by your actions of pulling back from the Gentiles? Does he lead people, Jesus, contrary to his father? Is this what you're saying, Peter? Because this is what you're saying by how you are living. That's quite a condemnation. That's quite an indictment. You see, it's important how one lives as a believer, right? Are, are we living consistently with what we believe? I mean, how many a preacher has undone his message by an unholy life? Sad to say. And we all preach a better message than we live. But we should be consistent with what we believe. Paul's confronting Peter for this very thing, man. Say, does Christ fulfill the law or not? Is justification by faith or not? He says, we ourselves are found sinners if Christ is not the means of justification. Is Christ a minister of sin? You can feel his repulsion at the end of verse 17. He says, may it never be. God forbid. God forbid that you would call Jesus a servant of sin. But that's what you're saying by living inconsistent. Now he goes on in verse 18 to further explain, because it starts with four there, verse 17. And in the context, what is it that he has destroyed? Verse 18 says, For if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Well, what is it that he has destroyed? Or, or the word is to cut loose or throw down or to demolish. What, is he, what has he demolished that he's then rebuilding? I think it has to do with the law, the law of Moses. By, by, think of Peter. By Peter setting aside the law of Moses to fellowship with Gentiles, he's basically saying the law has accomplished its purpose and no longer has its jurisdiction over me, and I'm set it aside because he had the vision in Acts 10. and went to Cornelius, okay? And now he's living in light of that, but now he's pulled back and living as though, oh, the law's back in place, right? If that's true, verse 18 says, if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself, I show myself to be a transgressor. Because the law never did go away. And so if I went to the Gentiles and the law and I didn't have the vision of Acts 10 and the gospel of grace. I actually sinned against God by going to fellowship with the Gentiles. See, this is, this is amazing stuff because it, it's the, the so what of this is the accusation against Jesus that he's a minister of sin. That's the deal, right? It's not about us so much. If I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, the eyes there. Paul's not in this. This is, this is rhetorical, right? The eyes here refer to Peter for sure. The law and its requirement, its restrictions, its many ordinances, its demand and its punishments. If you and I are, if, if we are restating Moses, and this is what Peter was doing by his life, then you are condemning yourself as a sinner because you set aside the law in order to fellowship with the Gentiles. Perhaps Peter even ate a pork chop. Right? He always wanted to, but the law wouldn't let him. I'm just inserting that, right? And he, so he had a pork chop. And he said, man, 
Look what I've been missing all my life. All right? This is good stuff. And then some legalistic Jew shows up and says, what are you doing eating condemned food? Oh. And he fell prey out of fear. And his life was a contradiction to the gospel of grace. And Paul says, and while you do that, you're actually condemning Jesus Christ and making him a minister of sin. Knock it off. Live by grace. Knock it off. Right? Peter, Peter. He's like, man. Listen to Acts 13, 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. The gospel is that which delivers us from the law's jurisdiction. And then you come to verse 19. He's further explaining, because you see it starts with four. He's going to explain further and defend his statement of justification by faith when he says in verse 19, this is awesome, that he's going to, the truth about justification by faith is, is shown here in the law's relationship with himself and every subsequent believer afterwards. Verse 19 for through the law, I died to the law. Now he's speaking about himself. So that I might live to God. This is good stuff. Notice here. Look at this carefully. Through the law, I died to the law. Well, let's start with died. To be dead to the law. It's like to be dead in our sins. Yeah? It's, it's to be unaffected. Unresponsive. It's, it's to be out from under its jurisdiction and influence. It's, 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 it doesn't apply. I'm dead to it. How did I get dead to it? Well, look at 19. It's through the law. I died to the law. How cool is that? Through the law? By, by means of the law. By means, by, by the channel by which I died to Moses was Moses himself. And what do you mean by that? Well, the law of Moses performed its function on Paul's behalf. It condemns the guilty, does the law, and punishes. And that punishment commanded by the law is death. The wages of sin is death, because the law says so. How is it then that Paul was put to death? By Moses. Well, look at verse 20. The first part. I have been crucified with Christ. That's awesome. Now, obviously, Paul was not actually hanging on the cross. But it's every bit as real as, as if he was. Think of that. I have been already crucified with Christ. It's not present tense. He's not crucifying himself. He's not going to be crucified. He's already been crucified. Think of this. Why was Jesus Christ crucified? It's because of the law of Moses. Because your sin, let's just use Paul. Paul's sin was placed on Jesus Christ. And the law of Moses came and condemned Christ is a sinner, you see. And in Christ, Moses kills the sinner. Therefore, Paul, when he believed, was crucified with Christ. It's that mystical, spiritual, glorious union with Jesus. I can't explain it, I just believe it. right? Because it's what it says. In union, in one with Christ, the believer is in union with Jesus so that his earthly experience is ours. That's incredible. Think of that. He is our righteousness. He is our life. He is our death. He is our resurrection. He is our right hand of the Father. He, we are co-heirs with Christ. We All that is his by right is ours by grace because of the union with Jesus Christ. You see, justification by faith is related to the union with Jesus Christ. It's not about works and your self-centered effort. It's about Christ and what he accomplished. You have to defend that. You cannot let anybody come and pollute that because you're damning people to hell the moment you do. 
Now this is a mantra, but you know what? It's Galatians mantra, so get used to it. Right? <laughs> As our substitute, the law of Moses has been fulfilled by the perfect life of Jesus and in his death, where he took our sins upon himself and was treated as though he committed them all, yet innocent of them all. Christ died as though he was a guilty sinner. The law killed him as it should kill all unrighteous sinners. As we already read in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now Paul wrote extensively on this, and I'm going to read this to you. So you can write this down and, and on your own read through this, but... Listen to Romans 6, please. And I just chose verses 6 through 11 for the sake of time, but the, the point is the same here. Romans 6, 6 through 11, Paul writes, Knowing this, that our old self, our old man, was crucified with him already, in order, result, that our body of sin might be done away with, invalidated so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin now if we have died with christ and we have we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again death no longer is master over him for the death that he died he died to sin once for all but the life that he lives he lives to who god even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Justification by faith is to be dead to the law and alive to God. That's simply what Paul is saying. Well, he says it even better if he can say that. <laughs> Romans 7, listen to 1 through 6. This is amazing. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction, he's talking about the law of Moses, jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound to the, by law to her husband while he's living. But if her husband should croak, die, she is, <laughs> my translation, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she's joined to another man, she's called what? An adulteress, if he's alive, and she does that. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she's joined to another man. Now listen, therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body so that you might be joined to another. To, and who's the other? To him who was raised from the dead, the resurrected Christ. In order, look at he's just heaping results here, So, in order that we might bear fruit for God. That's to live for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death, but now, in contrast, we have been already released, set free from the law. How is that? Having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit, not in oldness of the letter. This is facts, by the way, of those who are justified by faith. This isn't happening. This has already happened. So back to Galatians in our thoughts here, and I'll finish this. <laughs> to be justified by faith is to be dead to the law and alive to God. Later on in chapter 3, he'll say, did, you, did, you, uh, did, you, did, the, did the Spirit of God work because of your obedience to the law or by hearing of faith? Right, it's faith. Now notice in verse 20 again, please. That which follows crucified. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. And he goes on to say, it's no longer I who live. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives. Though he's crucified, he's alive. Okay, But it's not the same person. What do we mean? What is Paul meaning 
this that he was crucified is no longer I who lives. The old man, the old Paul, the old Saul of Tarsus, the old Tony is gone, dead. Notice what is in contrast with no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. It's no longer I, the old me who's alive, but there's been a radical change. And it's Christ living, present, active, and dignity. It's a, it's a fact, and it's a present, continual action, reality, that Christ actually lives in me. He actually does, says the text. I've been put to death with him. And it's no longer me, the old Tony that lives, the old Paul that lives, but actually the life that I'm now living is Christ in me. He's actually alive in me. And says, look at what he says, Christ lives in me. That, that, that animation, that, that, that expression, that, that life that is now being lived is empowered and energized and animated by the Christ who lives in you. That's incredible. And it's not by works of the law. It's by faith in Christ. And every person justified by faith is indwelt by Jesus Christ. And he's living in you and through you. He goes on, please. Christ lives in me and the life which I now live, though crucified, but now I'm living. Notice this living in the flesh, in this physical body here before the rapture, before the resurrection. He says, this life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. Now get this. He's defending justification by faith. The law only condemns, cannot justify. You know what? The law doesn't sanctify either. You know what sanctifies? is faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith to follow him. It's faith to, to have him live in and through me. You see, I don't go write a bunch of lists and say, this is how I'm going to be sanctified now. No. Later on, we'll learn in Galatians that the law brings you to the foot of the cross and leaves you there when you repent and believe. And it's done its duty. It's done its job. Yes? Yes. The freedom we have from the law and the freedom to love Christ and to follow Christ by faith and to love one another is absolutely glorious. And it's worth defending because it's the truth. Notice what he goes on to say here. He says that the life that I live in verse 20 is by faith, it's by trust. Notice how he identifies Christ. He calls him the Son of God. He doesn't just throw names out there because he's tired of using Jesus. <laughs> he goes, you know, I've used that 36 times already. I'm going to put another name in there. You know? <laughs> no, man, it's the Son of God. What's he emphasizing? He's, he's emphasizing the divinity, the divine Son, the second person of the Trinity. It's the one who actually lives in you. He's actually the one who's living through you. He's actually the one that is the source of your life, your obedience to God, your love for God, your love for one another. He's the source of that. What a stunning truth. The Son of God lives in you. Luther said your flesh is a Christian's a mask that covers what's really behind it, and that's Jesus. <laughs> that's Jesus. That's good stuff. Listen to what Paul wrote in Colossians 2.9. I know you know this, but this is just thrilling. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, finished, mature. Because of who he is. Think, the one who lives in you is the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells actually in bodily form. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he, he basically, my paraphrase, he says, what is this temple to contain God who's beyond the universe, right? The heavens and the heavens cannot contain you, let alone this temple I built. But yet, the in uncontainable, infinite God chooses to be bodily contained in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the one who indwells you. He and you and you and him. 
And he's the power, and he's the energy, he's the animation, he's the guide, the source, the purpose, the goal of all that you're doing. And he's, mo he's moving you along to love him and serve him. And it's not by works of the law, it's by faith in the Son of God. And he goes on to finish verse 20. Look at how he identifies Christ here. As the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. I love this. A couple things. It's past tense. Loved me in the past, gave himself up for me in the past. He's obviously talking about the cross. The cross is the greatest expression of love, among other things. And gave himself up. That, so the loving sacrifice of the Son of God is the basis of justification by faith, is the basis of a life that's lived by faith. The one he's believing and trusting in is the one who loves him and gave himself up for him. Notice... Please mark it. I took a yellow marker and marked me. He loved me and gave himself up for me. Now I ask you, is that how you see it? Because I've talked to a lot of people in my Christian life who will say, yeah, Christ died for me, but he died for everybody. And they, they deflect off of, no, 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 me. Because if you, if you don't identify with the me here, you don't see yourself as a sinner in need of grace. You just lump yourself in, in the whole kitten caboodle, the whole enchilada. No. You alone. Paul is, remember, he's been using we, we, we here, and now it comes to me, right? Not to the exclusion of anybody, but he's so transfixed, he's so taken up by grace, and he knows that Jesus loved him when he went to the cross. Is that how you see it? Did he take your sins to the cross? And do you say, Lord Jesus, you died for me? See, this is the difference between works-based and faith-based truth. He is our personal Savior. He is my personal Savior. Yes, he's the Savior of the world. Yes, he's the Lord and the head of the church. But you know what? He's my Savior. He's my friend. He's my God. He's my Lord. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Yeah. First Peter says, we love him though we've never seen him. But we believe that he loves us. When we See, the Spirit is the one who illumines your mind to the cross and he's the one that convinces you, yes, Jesus died. But not only died, he died for me. For my transgressions. For my sins. And he loved me. Do you walk in that? Do you realize the love of God for you personally? You're his daughter. And he loves you. As though you're the only one that lives. Think of that. And I like to bring it this way like Paul. He loves even me. <laughs> God loves me. So get used to it. You better start loving me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I don't, <laughs> that was a funny, that wasn't a truth. Uh, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? We love because he first loved us. You see, the motivation to follow Christ and to love others is to realize the love that God has for you. And this is what he's saying. Justification is all, that's why Luther says the church stands or falls on this doctrine. Justification by faith includes this. You're dead to the law. You're alive to God. You're alive to God because Christ lives in you. And you follow him by faith because you believe that he loved you and gave himself up for you. That's grace. Isn't it? You're, you're living in light of grace. I don't try to earn his favor. He's already given it to me. Right? Oh, there's discipline for a child of God who sins. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the, the favor of God is, a is his child. And justified by grace alone. That's good stuff. Look where he concludes. You know, sometimes preachers, I know you know this about me because I'm long-winded. I hate quitting because this is my favorite topic. <laughs> so forgive me for abusing you, but verse 21 is where we'll end. Look at what it says. 
Why does he end here? Well, it's because the false teachers were, were getting after Paul. He says, I do not nullify. Why does he say that? Obviously, they were accusing him that he did because he denied the law of God. Some twisted, perverted doctrine. But Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. Wow. Why is that? Because if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. That's the bottom line. Yeah? That's the bottom line. Wow. I do not nullify, I don't undo the grace of God by faith. I actually uphold it. I actually promote it. I actually defend it when I live by faith. And so serious is this that to promote that righteousness comes through the works of the law. Get this now. How serious this is, is that if you promote that righteousness comes through the works of the law, even in addition to faith, that is to say that Jesus died in vain. That is to say, as verse 21 says, that his death was not needed. Not needed. It wasn't necessary. If you can do works of the law, then you can save yourself. And the death of Christ is not necessary. It actually has no value to them. So Peter, are you willing to go there as we shut this down? By withdrawing from your Gentile brethren and separating yourself from them, you're actually taking your stand with the Judaizers against your beloved master. You are, in fact, joining in with their voices and, in fact, denying salvation by grace through faith. Peter, by his life, is preaching that. He doesn't believe that, but he's preaching that by his life. Is salvation by works of the law or faith in Christ? It's by faith in Christ. So I'll close with these four things I just want to throw by you. Based on all that we've looked at here, are you trusting in Christ alone for your righteousness before God? Are you mixing works at all with faith? I think a test is how do you respond when you sin? Do you doubt salvation? Do you fear God's condemnation? Do you, do you believe that maybe he loves you a little less? You see what I'm saying? If you believe that he loves you a little less, then you're not, you're not walking in the grace of the gospel. Remember when he found you, you were a dirty, rank, filthy sinner. <laughs> So you think now, as one who's in the process of sanctification, sins is going to be worse than when he found you? Come on, man. Don't the devil lie to you. Are you trusting in Christ alone for the righteousness required by God? Is your confidence for a right standing before God in your performance works in any level or in the finished work of Christ? Those are good questions to answer. Are you living today with a heart full of gratitude for such a glorious salvation? Third, are you willing to defend the gospel of grace? And last, I, in my little list here is, are you willing to proclaim it to all? The gospel of grace. As verse 21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the... Through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and his faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, also for Peter. Because we, really, we believe, at least based on his epistles, that he probably paid attention to Paul, paid attention to you. I lift up anyone here, Father, who has not repented and is not believing in you for salvation. May you have mercy upon them and open their heart to see Christ, to receive him. The Son of God who's hanging on a cross in their stead, who was buried and raised from the dead on the third day. 
and is the only means of salvation. Father, may you grant faith to us whom you have so gloriously, graciously saved in the past. May you ignite our heart, even reignite our heart, as to live for you, to preach your gospel everywhere we go until you call us home. I thank you, Lord, for you, and I thank you for your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.